You're listening to a CUNY Radio podcast of Newsmakers, a look at the people and places making headlines at the City University of New York. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Neil Rosenfeld. How do we know where we are, where we've been, and how to get to where we want to go? John O'Keefe, a 1963 graduate of City College, discovered the specific cells in our brains that register where we are and recognize the difference between here and another place. Two of his former students later found other cells that link this sense of place with a comprehensive internal map which works with memory to let you know where you've come from and plan to get somewhere else. For this, they shared the 2014 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. In a recent telephone conversation, O'Keefe discusses his research and how his undergraduate years at City College shaped his interests and his life. Welcome, Professor O'Keefe. First of all, congratulations on your prize. Has the world changed since you won? Yes, in fact, when, when uh, I first learned of uh, the fact that I had uh, been awarded the Nobel Prize, I said to my wife, I guess uh, the plans for the next couple of days, weeks, months are going to have to be changed a bit, and uh, that's proven correct. That's good. Well, could I ask you to start off by going through the explanation you've probably given many times of what it is that you discovered that won you the Nobel Prize? Well, we discovered that there were a, uh, a group of cells in a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is right inside your temples, uh, in what we call the temporal lobes, um, which respond to locations in an environment. They essentially are providing uh, other parts of the brain and the animal with information about where it is. And it, there are a whole bunch of these cells. In fact, uh, there's a, a large group of them, and each one has its own preferred place, uh, as we call them, in an environment. And if you put them all together, they essentially cover the entire uh, surface of the environment. So as an animal moves around in the environment, um, it has at each location an array of cells which are uh, become active and uh, which represent that location. So we thought, well, this is a very interesting finding because um, if, if the animal has information about where it is, and if we assume that it can put this information together in, in some sort of a, a spatial way so that when it's in one location, it knows where the um, location, for example, of other objects, perhaps food or water or other things, um, uh, is also uh, located, then um, you could imagine that this could be used for navigation. And it would provide the rest of the brain with a very flexible way of navigating. It would provide it with um, a system which would enable the animal to go either directly from where it was to where it wanted to be, um, or indirectly, if it turned out for some reason uh, the direct route was blocked. So we suppose that this was providing um, something called the cognitive map, a cognitive map um, which would enable the animal to know where it was and to, um, to navigate by, um, in a very flexible way. So what did the Mosers do who won the prize with you, Maybritt Moser and Edvard Moser? So as part of that um, thinking process, um, uh, 
we began to think about what other kinds of spatial information, sorry, this is the thinking process uh, which accompanied the, the, um, the original observations and the suggestion that the hippocampus might be a part of a cognitive mapping system. We began to think what other kind of information would um, the, um, the hippocampal formation need in order to do this navigational um, task. And so we've suggested that there should be other kinds of information about the speed at which the animal is moving um, through the environment, the direction in which it was facing, um, and the distance in which it was, uh, had gone or would wanted to go. And so over the years, our lab and other labs have, have tried to find these other sources of information. And um, over the years, uh, they've, they've been found. So in the mid-1980s, um, a, uh, a group in Downstate uh, Medical Center uh, in Brooklyn uh, found the cells which represented the direction in which the animal is facing. So when the animal faces, say, northeast, then some of the cells become active. When the animal faces east, another set of cells become active. And put together, these cells, uh, which seem to be in, in strong communication with each other, essentially provide a compass for the, uh, for the system. Um, and it took until about 2005, until the Moser group um, did, uh, actually discovered the other kinds of cells that we had uh, suggested existed. And these are cells which were providing the metric for the, for the system. That is, these are cells which seem to be telling the animal how far it's gone in a particular direction. And that's in particularly uh, shaped environments. Uh, so if an animal's in a, in a square-like environment or a circular environment, as it goes around the environment, these cells fire not in one particular location, as the place cells would, but in a whole series of locations. And that the places that the cell fires actually map out a very nice grid pattern across the surface of the environment. So as the animal goes, for example, northeast, the cell would go brrrp, and then it would be quiet, and then it would go brrrp, and then it would be quiet, and it does that in a very regular pattern. Um, and the pattern is, is uh, quite interesting. One, it's a hexagonal pattern, uh, which is symmetrical, so that uh, it forms a very nice, beautiful pattern uh, of activity across the, the environment. So we think that all of those cells put together really make up a nice system and provide all of the information which one would need to come up with a map-like uh, representation of the environment. So that's the inner GPS. So the inner GPS, yeah. So that's the gene. <laughs> we didn't coin that phrase. It's, it, but essentially, it's an accurate description of what we think the system does in animals such as, as uh, the rodent, rats and mice. Well, the hippocampus, as I understand it, also has a role in memory. So is there something involved here, like when you walk into a room and say, oh, I've been here before, and I could associate it with these other things that happened to me when I was in this room? Yes, that's exactly correct. So even before we started to work on the hippocampus, um, we knew that the uh, hippocampus had something to do with memory from the work of uh, Brenda Milner and colleagues at McGill. And they had come to this conclusion on the basis of um, studies that they had carried out on a patient called H.M., or Henry Mollison, um, as he's now known. Um, and Henry had epilepsy and had surgical removal of the hippocampus and, and a few other structures, I have to say, um, on both sides of, of the brain. And the, uh, the, the thinking behind the, the surgery was that um, he had severe epilepsy and he was 
rather, which was rather resistant to epileptic drugs. Um, so that the thinking was that if, this, if the epileptic focus was in the hippocampus, this would reduce his, his seizures. And in fact, that worked. Um, he had many fewer seizures and uh, uh, took less um, epileptic uh, medicine. On the other hand, when he came around from the operation, he had a clear memory deficit. He no longer could remember things that had happened to him in the past, and he could no longer lay down memories for things that were going to happen in the future. So if Henry and the, uh, most of us know what we had for lunch yesterday and where we had it and with whom we had it, uh, Henry couldn't remember that sort of thing. He could remember other things. He could remember facts, um, and he could he could develop new motor skills. He could learn to to the equivalent of riding a bicycle and things like that. He just couldn't remember the episodes of, of his past. He had what we now call autobiographical memory deficits or a deficit in episodic memory. So when we started recording from the, the cells in the hippocampus, we fully expected to see memory cells, um, but what we hadn't expected to see was that the cells would be specific for spatial memories. And you're absolutely right. Our thinking is that um, in the human um, the uh, human hippocampus uh, carries out a, a spatial memory function similar to what we see in, in rodents. Um, and we have evidence for this from uh, looking at uh, people trying to find their way around virtual reality environments um, and, and uh, scanning their brains. Uh, and that those, those studies light up the hippocampus. And we think there's also the addition of other information to the system, um, and particularly information about time. Uh, we're still not sure that uh, a rat knows that it's today as opposed to yesterday or tomorrow. Um, and so if you ha have this notion of linear time as opposed to cyclical time or what we call circadian time, which is that it's morning, noon, and night, then you could see that you could take a spatial system and develop it so that it was now a spatio-temporal system so that you would not only know that you were in a particular place, but you would know that you had been there in the past, how long ago you had been there, and what you were, had done there. So we think that's the way that you take a, a basically spatial memory system and develop it into um, what we call an episodic memory system. So you're absolutely right. When you come into the room and you look around, you say, hmm, I'd been here before, and oh, I remember it was two weeks ago, and uh, Joe Bloggs was here at the same time, and we had this conversation. So it acts as a retrieval cue. The spatial information acts as a retrieval cue, which pulls out um, a whole bunch of other memories that go with it. Have you yourself worked on the memory deficit issue? Um, well, we have a whole group that I collaborate with. Um, in so, Sorry, I guess the question is, are you talking about rodents or humans? Either. Well, we certainly know. We, we've we've uh, trained animals on simple spatial memory tasks. Um, and we certainly know that damage in the hippocampus uh, severely impairs their ability to, to um, learn about uh, locations in an environment and to navigate between them. And we've done me memory uh, tasks where you um, ask the animal to um, remember where it had been uh, a few minutes ago and to go either back to that same place or to another place. And it's one of the standard ways of testing for spatial memory. And it certainly is one of the standard ways in which you can show the hippocampus is involved in, in spatial navigation and spatial memory. And okay. we've also done something similar on human beings. Okay. Now I understand that you're now moving on into research in Alzheimer's disease. Could you tell us about that? Well, it turns out that, uh, although we didn't know it at the, the 
the time we first started looking at the, the hippocampus and hippocampal cells that um, this is the part of the brain which is uh, attacked uh, earliest in Alzheimer's disease. Um, so if you look at the, the, where the, the, uh, the psycho, where the pathological signs of, of Alzheimer's, the plaques and the tangles, um, first appear and first become uh, expressed, it's in, it's in this part of the brain in the uh, hippocampus and surrounding areas, particularly an area called the entorhinal cortex. So um, several years ago, my colleagues and I um, thought it might be uh, interesting to go and look at some of the um, mutant models of uh, the uh, transgenic models of, of, um, of Alzheimer's disease, um, where it's possible to create some of the um, aspects of the disease. It's not a full, um, not a full-blown uh, replication of the disease, but it replicates some of the, um, the pathological aspects of the disease in, in mice to see if we could see what was happening to these spatial cells. And so we carried out that study and found, indeed, that um, as animals get older, as these animals get older, the, um, the place cells in the hippocampus become less good at, at localizing the animal's uh, position in the environment, and that, that correlates very well with their ability to do one of these spatial memory tasks where they have to remember where they have been uh, a few minutes ago, and that also correlates very well with the um, with the uh, the plaques and tangles, particularly the, in this case the the, the the growth of plaques in, in in their brains. So we think this is a potentially a very good model for beginning to look at the the mechanics of how the disease uh, actually um, impairs uh, memory function. We've also been able to um, to show by by thinking about. Um, how humans find their way around plates. We've been able to devise uh, spatial tasks, spatial memory tasks for, for humans, and um, we've been able to, when I say we, I mean mostly my colleagues, um, have been able to show that uh, these are very, very good sensitive tasks for um, identifying the very earliest stages of Alzheimer's. So if you ask yourself whether a particular group of, of patients who have mild cognitive impairments are going to actually turn into Alzheimer's patients, then uh, you can use these tasks to, um, to test their memory, uh, and particularly their spatial memory, and they're pretty good predictors of, 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 of uh, that, uh, that change. They're pretty good predictors of which patients are going to go on to become Alzheimer's disease patients. Well, may I shift gears a little bit back to City College? One of the things about City University of New York is that we have this history of being a pathway for immigrants and the children of immigrants to move into the middle class and beyond. Could I ask you about your background and your experience at City and how you got here? I know you started at NYU. Yeah, so I, I, uh, I went to a, a Jesuit high school in, in New York. Um, um, and um, and uh, after that, I uh, I went and worked for a couple of years, but decided that I really wanted to get an education, and I was um, f started to um, started off thinking that engineering would be the right uh, right uh, discipline for me to study, and I, I got a job at um, so so I started taking aeronautical aeronautical engineering in the um, in the evening at NYU. These were the days of Sputnik, and it was very glamorous, and uh, I certainly uh, had it in mind to, to uh, 
not only to to make airplanes, but also to if I had the chance to uh, to make spaceships and rockets and things like that. Um, I had to. I didn't have any money, so I had to earn my keep. I uh, worked in the daytime at, uh, at an air, aircraft uh, industry, uh, in an aircraft company, and uh, went to NYU in the evening. Um, and I was going to school four or five nights in the evening, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, trying to to make progress in, in becoming an, an engineer, and getting an engineering degree. And after about uh, three years or so. I uh, had the opportunity to to shift to go to daytime. Uh, I applied to City College and they accepted me, and they accepted many of the credits I had uh, uh, accumulated at, at NYU in engineering and maths and, and uh, physics. Um, so I then was in a position to go daytime, and uh, I couldn't have done it. City College, of course, in those days, uh, didn't charge tuition, or at least it didn't charge tuition for people like myself. Um, and so I was able to then carry on my education. I shifted from engineering into physics originally, but then since I had developed an interest in, in um, trying to understand how, um, how uh, some of the aspects of psychology could be explained in terms of brain function, um, I eventually moved into psychology. While I was at City, I took lots of different courses. It was, I, I think, it was an incredibly enjoyable time, and I, uh, I, I, I think I acted like a, a kid in a, a candy shop. I, <laughs> I said, why wouldn't it be interesting to take courses in film studies, and wouldn't it be interested to take advanced English courses? And I took a lot of philosophy courses. I was particularly interested in philosophy, and uh, took many, many philosophy courses from philosophy of science to ethics to philosophy of religion. Um, and, and, uh, and in fact, I, I, I actually met my wife in, a, in one of those philosophy courses, and that was, uh, that was tremendous. Um, after a while, I think uh, City College began to ask themselves whether I was, <laughs> I was seriously going to take a degree and, and move on. Um, so they said to me, well, I remember one day a dean said to me, you've got enough credits to take a, a degree in several subjects, so why don't you take one of them and look to your future? So I took one in, uh, I, I took my degree in psychology and, and, um, and then uh, went from there to, uh, to McGill in, in Montreal. I had a very nice conversation with one of your former uh, teachers, Dr. Philip Ziegler. Yeah, so, um, he, yes, and, and, and uh, I, I, I'm very grateful to Phil. He was uh, one of the people who... Um, who was an incredible uh, inspiration. Um, he had just come from Wisconsin and set up his lab, and uh, uh, he uh, allowed me to come and, and work with him, and uh, that certainly uh, was my first experience of doing experimental work, and, and it certainly uh, inspired me to go and, and become an experimentalist, so I'm very grateful to him. There were several other people there. Um, Danny Lehrman used to, who was a great ethologist, and worked at uh, Rutgers in the daytime, um, used to come by um, City College on his way home to Greenwich Village, and uh, and he would give one course, and I, I was fortunate enough to be able to take that course. It was a course in animal behavior, and uh, he was a tremendous inspiration. He was interested in pigeons, not, not pigeons, ring doves, and I can still remember him flying across the uh, the classroom uh, in his imitation uh, of, of, of a ring dove, uh, and he was particularly interested in, in mating behavior, so he used to show us all the all the behaviors <laughs> that involved in mating in the ring dove. 
I also took a course with Kenneth Kenneth B. Clark, who was already very famous and, and, and well known for the work he had done on on children and, and uh, work that um, that actually formed the basis for the Supreme Court judge, uh, judgment, uh, uh, which abolished essentially abolished segregation. Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. And uh, he was a great inspiration as well. So I I I, I, uh, I really. Uh, came across some very, very influential and uh, very inspiring teachers at City. I heard that Kenneth Clark would bring some interesting speakers into class. Yeah, he brought lots of people into class. It was a kind of a, it, w- it was a class in motivation, um, and, uh, but I think he, he, he took it as, he, he had a much broader vision than the, the, than the narrow uh, curriculum, uh, and uh, we, we learned a lot, and we, we read interesting books, but the highlight of the course was he would bring people in from all walks of life, um, including uh, somebody like Malcolm X, and I remember very clearly Malcolm X spending a whole hour telling us about how things looked from his perspective, um, and uh, I, I found him very, very interesting and, and uh, a very, very uh, interesting character. He was uh, very, very intelligent, and, and I, I took a great... Uh, liking to, to him at the time. I read some things online about your thoughts about government spending, government support for scientific research, and I know that's an issue in Britain as it is here in the United States. Uh, could I ask you to talk about that for a moment? Yes, I'm a great believer in, 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 in government spending, um, and particularly government spending for basic research. It's, it's very hard for, for, for governments. I, I don't underestimate how much how difficult it is and how much trouble they have, because they, they obviously have to, uh, in democracies, they have to convince um, the, um, the citizens and, and the people who pay their taxes that this is uh, value for money, that they're getting something back. And the easiest way to do that is to, is to sort of support uh, what we call translational or applied research, where they can point to people who are working directly and immediately on, on immediate problems problems in, in, uh, of diseases and, and, and uh, things like that. So um, I, I can understand why they, they're, they're uh, tempted to, to try to direct money in that, in that way. But in the end, if you don't understand how something works in terms of, of, of uh, the basic mechanisms, for example, of how an organ uh, or, or how something like, uh, like the brain works, then uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to, to, to solve problems when things go wrong. So I'm a great believer that governments should put considerable resources into basic science and to try to uh, justify that. I think it is justified. I think we, we uh, can show uh, historically that uh, our, an understanding of the basic sciences uh, actually leads eventually to incredibly important um, um, incredibly important um, products uh, and incredibly important um, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitating to call them cures for disease but, but progress towards cures for diseases was government funding critical to your research as well uh, absolutely the, the, the uh, both the American government initially, and then uh, and then the Canadian government when I was uh, doing the PhD at McGill, was, uh, and and then the the British government have all provided me with um, grants and, and fellowships to support my my research. And I have to say, without those grants, I I just couldn't have carried it out. Um, 
I'm, I'm very grateful. I, I originally um, had an, uh, an NIH um, postdoctoral fellowship in, 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 uh, when I was at McGill, and then uh, I had a, um, a uh, sorry, a, a, a pre-doctoral fellowship at McGill, and then when I came to uh, Britain, I was supported by an NIH postdoctoral fellowship, and then, uh, and then the British government uh, continued funding for my research. So I am certainly uh, someone who has uh, benefited enormously from from uh, government support of, of research, and I just couldn't have done what I did if, if I hadn't had government support. Um, that's been supplemented by support from charities more recently, particularly the Wellcome uh, Trust, which is a very large uh, charity, and also the Gatsby uh, Charitable Foundation. So I'm a great believer in those, and I think it's 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 uh, with it's fairly easy to justify, if you look at the broader picture, um, support for basic research. I thank you very much. And I just want to say that all of us here at City University are tremendously excited about what you've accomplished and the inspiration that you give to our young students. <laughs> well, good. I hope I do. I am, I am uh, very proud of being a product of, of City College. And I certainly look forward to coming there in May. Um, and... Uh, I hope to meet uh, not only yourself and, and other people uh, who are teacher there, teachers there, um, but also some of the students. I, I think City is a is a great institution, and um, I, it's been a great institution in the past, and I wish it well uh, in the future. Oh, I didn't realize you would be here in May. Uh, yes, I am. Um, apparently, I'm uh, I'm being honored with a, an honorary doctorate. Wonderful. So uh, <laughs> perhaps we'll get to see each other then. I would love it. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. For more Newsmakers, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu slash radio. Newsmakers is a production of the Office of University Relations.